We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 86 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Jordan Reed episode, or is it the Clint Didier episode? I'll let you decide. It is Thursday, June 17th, 2021. I actually got a tweet about the numbers thing. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. Rich Poland tweeted me on Wednesday morning. Thank you, Galdi, for indicating podcast numbers with WFT players as someone who has been around since the Chris Hamburger years and remembers passwords through WFT numbers. Uh Uh-oh, don't say that too loudly. Uh, I look forward to you continuing this trend with the Clint Didier pod. Yeah, I could go Didier with this episode. Could also, though, go Jordan Reed. So take your pick. Make your own choice as the Wizards have made their choice. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team, our team, Scott Brooks, officially done as Wizards head coach. So much for all signs pointing toward the Wizards keeping Brooks as head coach. Either the reporting on this situation was way off or something changed and changed big time. What happened? And more importantly, what now? Who should be the Wizards next head coach? My thoughts next segment. We have plenty to discuss regarding the Washington football team. Ron Rivera spoke on Wednesday and again talked up a quarterback competition while again framing it as a two-man battle. Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke. When exactly are the people who keep dismissing the quarterback competition going to come around on this? How many times exactly do Ron and others have to say this? And yes, Fitzmagic remains the favorite to be the QB1 in week one, no doubt. But Heineke has a chance, and he should have a chance. I'll get into all of that, as well as talk about these updated COVID-19 protocols in the NFL. Have you seen these? The message to people like Montez Sweat is pretty clear. You don't have to get vaccinated. We're just going to make your life as annoying, inconvenient, and non-profitable as we can if you don't get vaccinated. I'll talk Nationals as they did it. They completed a three-game sweep of the lowly, pathetic Pittsburgh Pirates as the Nats pitching continued to be outstanding. A 3-1 win at Nationals Park on Wednesday. What a job by my guy, 
Paolo Espino. Are the Nats finally, finally getting it together in this 2021 season? Huge test of that is upcoming. Big four-game series with the National League East leading New York Mets at Nationals Park Friday through Sunday, four games in three days. And I'll talk Orioles, their franchise record road losing streak now at 18. Yes, 18 consecutive road losses, 8-7 the final at the Cleveland Indians on Wednesday night. The Orioles road losing streak now can legally vote the road losing streak turning 18 on Wednesday night. Just keep repeating my mantra to yourself if you're an O's fan. Pain now, pleasure later. Just keep saying that. Pain now, pleasure later. Hey, Ryan Mountcastle had a big game on Wednesday night. You can focus on that. You can always email me too, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Michael King regarding the Wizards parting ways with Scott Brooks. Writes Michael, I'm surprised, but thank goodness, absolutely going nowhere with Scott Brooks. Probably won't go anywhere anyway, but this is a good start. Well, we are going somewhere on this show as it is a busy Thursday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Good to have you with us. So, Scott Brooks is Wizards head coach no more. What many of you wanted, what I wanted, now is official. The Wizards on Wednesday announcing that they have parted ways with Brooks after five seasons as the team's head coach. This technically is not a firing. Uh, I don't know how much that matters, but in terms of the mechanics of this, the Wizards hired Brooks as their head coach in April 2016, gave him a five-year contract worth a reported $35 million. Yes, Scott Brooks made $35 million over the last five years. He technically was not fired by the Wizards. They just simply decided not to extend him. Okay, whatever. The question is why, and the why isn't so obvious. RG3 told us years ago to know our why. Do you know your why? Because right now, we don't know the Wizards' why for parting with Brooks. Wizards general manager Tommy Shepard in a press conference on Wednesday did say that it was his decision for the Wizards to part ways with Scott Brooks and that owner Ted Leonsis had provided his blessing. But Shepard in the press conference did not reveal much about why he chose to move on from Brooks. Take a listen. It's about the future and where we can go and kind of looking at where the areas are that we struggled in the past with and what we're prepared to do to get better in those areas. So you know, a lot of the conversations that happen throughout the year um, and, and the evaluations you do after a season, they, they kind of all feed in together to, to one big report. And, and I have to observe the information, the data, take into account all the possible relationships. And again, where is our best leverage point to get better moving forward? What do we have and where do we need to be? And that's kind of where that decision came. I, I'd like to keep most of the conversations, obviously, are very private. But it's just something that I I take this job very seriously. My job is to make the Washington Wizards franchise the very best. You know, our, our co-owners are our fans. Our co-owners are the players. Everybody that, that cares about this franchise, my job is to elevate this franchise. And it's not, again, it's not one person. Everybody we work to cl- collectively together. But that decision was made with the future in mind of where I think we can go. Yeah, we really did not get very much from Tommy in that presser on Wednesday in terms of the why. The man who broke the news of the Wizards parting with Brooks, ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski, he on Wednesday reported that, quote, the two sides failed to come to an agreement on a new deal, end quote. Woj in an appearance on ESPN Sports Center, said, quote, I think there were questions about staff, 
Certainly, Scott Brooks wanted to go forward with the staff he had, end quote. Okay, of course, it's also possible that the Wizards just wanted to do better than Brooks as their head coach, right? Like, maybe all of this is just about, we don't really think you're as good as what we want right now. But then why did we have so many indications that he would be staying as Wizards head coach? Understand, the Wizards retaining Brooks as their head coach had very much been the vibe from people who cover the team, including Wizards insider Fred Katz of the Athletic DC. And that had been the vibe from Shepard himself at a press conference back on June 3rd. Like, every indication seemed to be that Brooks was staying, not leaving. Remember, the thinking was that the Wizards, in an effort to double down on Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook and appease Westbrook, were keeping Brooks. Westbrook loves Brooks and vice versa. Don't forget what Westbrook said after the Wizards' final game of this season, that 129-112 Game 5 elimination loss at the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of the playoffs. Westbrook on whether the Wizards should retain Scott Brooks as head coach, quote, that's not my decision, but me personally, I don't see why Scotty should go anywhere. This year, he did a hell of a job. He did a job that I'm pretty sure people didn't think he was able to do. He don't get a lot of credit for it. He deserves a lot of credit for it, end quote. And then there is money. What about money? So much in life comes down to money, right? Is that the why in all of this? The money. Uh, Wojnarowski, remember, reported, quote, the two sides failed to come to an agreement on a new deal, end quote. Maybe that is about money. If the Wizards and Brooks being unable to come to an agreement had anything to do with money, I would just say this. That is so ridiculous on both parties. If the Wizards truly thought that Brooks still was the best realistically available person to be the team's head coach, okay, and I would not think that, but if for whatever reason the Wizards did think that, then the Wizards should have found a way to keep Brooks, okay? Money should not be the reason for not keeping a head coach who you believe is the best realistically available head coach for your team. And from Brooks's perspective, if money was the issue here, I mean, I would just say, bro, exactly how much were you asking for? I mean, let's think about this with Scott Brooks. The guy just got paid $35 million over five years, $7 million per year to go 183 and 207 in regular season games and win exactly one playoff series. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what Scott Brooks did as Wizards head coach, 183 and 207 in regular season games and one playoff series victory, especially with NBA revenues down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Brooks potentially having asked for more money is nuts to me. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Yes, exactly. But we don't know if Scott Brooks asked for more money. We don't even know if money was the thing in terms of why the Wizards have parted ways with Scott Brooks as head coach. You likely know where I stand on the Wizards this offseason. Because Bradley Beal can opt out of his contract next offseason, the Wizards this offseason need to either double down on Beal and Westbrook by adding a third major piece or trade Beal. Running it back isn't good enough because the Wizards as currently constructed aren't good enough to do anything meaningful. My stance on Scott Brooks was if keeping him was a part of an overall strategy of trying to maximize Beal and Westbrook, because Westbrook has this great relationship with Brooks, then I was actually open to the Wizards retaining Brooks. But understand, beyond that, I did not want Brooks back as Wizards head coach. Scott Brooks was a mediocre head coach for the Wizards. Now, there were positives with him. Brooks, by all indications, is a good man, okay? None of this is personal with Scott Brooks. Brooks' first season as Wizards head coach 
that 2016-2017 season was the Wizards' best season in decades. The Wizards' first 49-win regular season since the 1978-79 season and that 2016-2017 season resulted in the Wizards making Game 7 of an Eastern Conference semifinal series against the Boston Celtics. The Wizards haven't made it past the second round of the NBA playoffs since the 1978-79 season. The farthest the Wizards have gone since then was with Scott Brooks in his first season as Wizards head coach. So we shouldn't just forget that. I am also sympathetic to Brooks in that he, during his tenure with the Wizards, had to put up with a lot. You know, John Wall's career fell apart during Brooks' tenure as head coach. Wall played in just 73 regular season games over his final three seasons with the Wizards, 2017-2018 through 2019-2020. And Brooks had to put up with a lot in the way of Wizards dysfunction over his five seasons as Wizards head coach. But you also have to say this to that. The truth is that Brooks was a part of the dysfunction because he was the head coach. Okay, you can't just absolve Brooks of any fault with the dysfunction and say, well, you know, what was he going to do? Well, he was the head coach. There's a lot that he could have done. You know, I go back to the incredible Wizards toxicity of the early portion of the 2018-2019 season. If you remember this, November 2018, multiple national stories on the Wizards being a mess. John Wall reportedly was fined by the Wizards that month for telling Scott Brooks, F you, during a practice that became a mess. Wojnarowski reported at the time that, quote, the disconnect between Wall and his teammates has increased throughout the Wizards' struggles, end quote. It was also during this time that our guy, ESPN Stephen A. Smith, famously called out Wall for constantly partying at Rose Bar in D.C. The Stephen A. Smith soundbite, which, by the way, people have stolen from me and now try to pass off as their own, you frauds. I know who you are. Uh, That soundbite is from this period of time. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. The Wizards were a mess at that point in time. The Wizards, in fact, were such a mess in that 2018-2019 season that they, in December 2018, traded for Trevor Ariza for leadership. The Wizards had three max contract players on the roster in John Wall, Bradley Beal, and Otto Porter Jr., and yet had to trade for leadership in December 2018 in the form of a guy who previously had been with the Wizards in Trevor Ariza. Now, the bulk of this to me was on the players, not on Brooks, but Brooks was the head coach. Like, you can't just absolve him of any blame of this kind of a thing. Brooks, over his five seasons as Wizards head coach, again, just 183 and 207 in regular season games. That's a winning percentage of 469. Not very good. Just one and three in playoff series. Again, not very good. Brooks never got the Wizards to be anything close to a consistently good defensive team. The Wizards have been a bad defensive team by and large for years. The exceptions to that are a few seasons with Randy Whitman as head coach, believe it or not. But the Wizards' rankings in defensive rating, which is points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com, in each of Brooks's five regular seasons as Wizards head coach were as follows. 2016-2017, 20th. 2017-2018, 15th. 2018-2019, 27th. 2019-2020, 29th, which is next to last in the NBA. And this past regular season, 2020-21, 20th. The Wizards in four of Brooks' five seasons as head coach were 20th or worse in the NBA 
and defensive rating in the regular season. When it came to offense, yeah, the Wizards scored some points with Brooks as head coach, but you can't just go by that. Everyone's scoring points these days. Brooks ran an unimaginative half-court offense that basically was all about iso ball. Now, in fairness to him, he's far from the only NBA head coach who does this, and the Wizards under Brooks were quite good offensively when they played fast, and the Wizards did play fast, especially this past regular season. But when the Wizards under Brooks were forced to play a more half-court style, like, say, in the NBA playoffs, the Wiz often got exposed. And the Wizards' rankings in offensive rating, which is points per 100 possessions per NBA.com, actually were not that good over Brooks's five regular seasons as Wizards head coach. Listen to these numbers, okay? Now, 2016-2017, the offensive rating was good, eighth in the NBA. Okay, but listen to what went down each of the next four regular seasons. 2017-2018, Wizards were 15th in the NBA in offensive rating. 2018-2019, 15th. 2019-2020, 16th. 2020-21, 17th. Middle of the pack. That's all the Wizards were in offensive rating each of the last four regular seasons, despite all these points that the Wizards were putting up. You can't just go by points. You have to go by points per possession, okay, or points per 100 possessions, because everyone plays fast now. So the point totals are misleading. It's how efficient are you offensively? And the Wizards actually weren't that efficient offensively in recent seasons. As for who should be the Wizards' next head coach. Look, I am open to many people. There are already a ton of names that are out there. Tommy Shepard on Wednesday talked about the Wizards engaging in a vast and diverse search for a next head coach. I'm fine with that, okay? Look at all the candidates you want to look at. But what I want the Wizards' next head coach to excel at in particular is one thing, and that is getting the Wizards to consistently play high-level defense. It has been forever since the Wizards did that. I trust the Wizards to score points, okay? I know that this is not the early 90s and that you're not going to bludgeon teams and win a bunch of games, you know, 84-72. The Wizards are going to score points. The Wizards, though, don't consistently play defense, haven't consistently played defense for years. I want the Wizards' next head coach to be someone who gets the Wizards to play quality defense. So much of defense in basketball is about effort and also about coaching, okay? And the best defensive coaches get their players to put forth the effort and preach defense and instill an importance when it comes to defense and have defense as a big part of the overall team culture. I don't think Brooks did that. The Wizards' next head coach needs to do that because if the Wizards are ever going to do anything meaningful in the NBA playoffs, it's going to have to be because they're playing very good defense. It's very hard to win in the NBA. And I'm talking about meaningfully winning, okay? Deep NBA playoff runs without being able to D up consistently. The Wizards haven't done that in forever. But, you know, all these names that are already out there, you know, Wes Unsell Jr., Sam Cassell, Becky Hammond, Mark Jackson, Kenny Atkinson, Chauncey Billups, Mike D'Antoni, Robert Pack. I'm open to all of them, okay? I want the Wizards to cast a wide net and let's do this thing right, okay? I would make calls to college head coaches. I would call Tony Bennett at Virginia. I would call Jawan Howard at Michigan. I would call, you ready for this? Mike Krzyzewski, who is about to be out as Duke head coach at the end of this next season and just see what do they say? What might they want to do? I'm not saying all these people would make great NBA head coaches, but it never hurts to pick the minds of these people and you never know, you know, maybe Tony Bennett would be an excellent NBA head coach. He did play in the NBA and he's young enough to where I think he could relate to the modern NBA player. And you want to do defense well, you get someone like Tony Bennett 
to instill his defensive principles. Now, how realistic is that? The pack line defense in the NBA? I'm not quite sure, okay? I understand that. But again, make the phone call. Have a conversation. Nothing bad will come of that. Here was Shepard on Wednesday on how much coaching experience matters when it comes to who the Wizards hire to be their next head coach. I think you, you look at everything that goes into being a head coach and you want the qualities that, that you think are going to amplify the needs of your team. So certainly, and I look, you know, let's be honest, you look at the modern NBA, what's going on, who's in the finals right now, or who's in the, who's in the, in the, in still playing. Okay. And it's a great, it's a great snapshot of what the NBA is. You have very diverse coaches, you, you have former players, you have people that came from division two colleges, you know, it, it's, it's just a reminder that there's no clear path of how to get there. There's no magic formula. But there's no one great person that's going to solve all this. I think it's all about the staff you put together because everybody, you know, if you're a first-time head coach or a head coach that's coached a 1,000 games, you still have to go coach the next game no matter what your resume to that point that got you there. You still have to go out and do these things. Yeah, again, Shepard really didn't give us much on Wednesday, and that's fine. That's his job as a general manager. His job isn't to go out there and, you know, tell us every little detail about every little thing. His job is to talk and say nothing. Joe Gibbs used to be a master of that, talk and actually say nothing, and that's what Shepard largely did on Wednesday. But whatever the thinking is, whatever the why for parting ways with Scott Brooks was, an already massive Wizards offseason is now even bigger because the Wizards now have to find themselves a new head coach. Well, we have another layer to add to the intrigue that is the quarterback competition for the Washington football team. I have said that I want the competition, an open, honest, good faith competition. I have been amused by how quickly and decisively so many have just dismissed Taylor Heineke this offseason, even after what he did in a loss to the eventual Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in that wild card game last January. And here we are now in the midst of Washington's month and a half long break until training camp, and the momentum continues to build toward the quarterback competition being real. And understand, Ryan Fitzpatrick remains the likely QB1 for Washington in week one, but the complete dismissal of Heineke is looking more and more foolish, and the quarterback competition is looking more and more real, in no small part because Ron Rivera keeps perpetuating the quarterback competition, and the quarterback competition now unequivocally seems to be a two-man battle, not a three-man battle. Let's get it there, Heineke! Heineke! Yes, thank you, Chase Young. The latest comes to us from a conversation that Ron Rivera had with Washington football team insider Ben Standig of the Athletic DC on Wednesday. First of all, Ron again positioned Washington's quarterback competition as being a two-man battle between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke. Kyle Allen does not seem to be a factor at all for QB1. We first got a sense of this last Thursday, June 10th, when Ron, in his final post-practice press conference of Washington's mandatory minicamp, responded to an open-ended question about the quarterback play in minicamp by praising Ryan Fitzpatrick, adamantly praising Taylor Heineke, including calling him, quote, an extremely accurate passer, end quote, talking up the quarterback competition, and not even mentioning Kyle Allen. And then Ron, later in the press conference, again expressed regret over not having conducted a quarterback competition at training camp 
in 2020. Well, Ron on Wednesday in these comments to Ben did make it clear that Fitzpatrick is the number one for the time being, but also made it clear that there is a competition and that the competition is Fitzpatrick versus Heineke. Quote, Ryan has the job right now and it's his to have. I'm not going to say it's his to lose. I think that's the wrong way to look at things. It's his to have. I'm not going to discount Taylor. The things that Taylor did last year, the momentum he built up as a player, you've got to give them equal opportunities and equal chance, end quote. Let me repeat that last phrase. You've got to give them equal opportunities and equal chance. First of all, if you're Kyle Allen, what are you thinking right now? Ron was your backer. Ron traded a fifth round pick to the Carolina Panthers to get you, and then late last regular season talked you up as having been capable of putting Washington exactly in the same spot that Alex Smith put Washington in. And now, months before training camp even begins, you're not even a factor in a quarterback competition that's looking increasingly legitimate by the day. But second of all, if you're Taylor Heineke, you now seemingly have a chance. It's maybe not a great chance. As Ron said, Ryan has the job right now and it's his to have, but this is a chance for Heineke. There's no doubt about that. And that's good. That's very good. He deserves a chance. I don't get why so many are so against him getting a chance. That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm excited for Ryan Fitzpatrick. I've talked about that on the podcast for months now, but what is the harm in giving Heineke a chance at being the starting quarterback? What if Washington has itself a true diamond in the rough in Taylor Heineke? Why not at least see the Heineke movie a little more before completely shutting the door on any notion of him being a legit QB1? You've got to give them equal opportunities and equal chance. Ron said that. That's as far as Ron has gone up until now in terms of conveying that the quarterback competition will be a legitimate competition. Now, you know how we roll on the Al Galdi podcast. We follow the actions far more than the words, but training camp hasn't yet started. So right now, all we have are words. We'll see what the actions end up being, but for now, we have the words, and the words, at least for the moment, are communicating a message that's pretty clear. The quarterback competition is more real than many have thought, and the quarterback competition is a two-man battle, not a three-man battle. And so you take a step back and you look at what's transpired here. Just over the last week and a half, Monday, June 7th, Washington's quarterbacks coach Ken Zampezi in a press conference responded to a question asking for the keys for Taylor Heineke to prove that he isn't a flash in the pan by saying, quote, stay on the field. The rest of it spoke for itself this past year, end quote. So in other words, all Zampese said was, yeah, just got to stay healthy. He stays healthy. This guy can be legit. Three days later, those aforementioned comments by Ron in his final post-practice press conference of Washington's mandatory minicamp, these were the comments that really got this thing going in terms of the quarterback competition and in terms of it being just a two-man battle between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke. Also, Antonio Gibson, in an interview on an installment of NBC Sports Washington's Washington Football Talk podcast that dropped last Thursday, June 10th, said in response to whether Fitzpatrick is ready to run Washington's offense at a high level, quote, of course, end quote, but also said, quote, those guys got to compete, end quote, and mentioned both Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. Look, you're not wrong to think that Ryan Fitzpatrick will be Washington's starting quarterback 
to begin the 2021 season. But you're also not wrong to think that Taylor Heineke has a window within which he can earn being Washington's starting quarterback to begin the 2021 season. Let's get it there, Heineke! Heineke! Exactly. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, did you see what came out on Wednesday regarding the NFL and COVID-19? Multiple reports of updated COVID-19 protocols for NFL training camps and the preseason this year. So as many of you know, the NFL essentially has mandated that staff members and employees get vaccinated. People who are tier one and tier two employees are expected to be vaccinated unless they have underlying medical or religious reasons for not being vaccinated. The NFL, though, has not mandated that players get vaccinated, but these updated protocols essentially are mandating that players get vaccinated. The message is clear. Either get vaccinated for COVID-19 or things aren't going to be so easy for you. Uh, The gist of the updated protocols is that vaccinated players have things much easier and better than non-vaccinated players. Here are three things that stood out to me. Number one, fully vaccinated individuals exposed to a COVID-19 positive individual will not be labeled as high-risk close contacts and thus subjected to mandatory five-day isolations, the likes of which kept many players, coaches, and others out of games in the 2020 season. So right there, major competitive advantage to having a high vaccination rate among your players. This is exactly what I talked about last week off the comments by Montez Sweat of the Washington football team, right? He, at his post-minicamp practice press conference on June 9th, revealed himself to have been among those players who had not been vaccinated for COVID-19. Quote, I'm not a fan of it. I probably won't get vaccinated until I got more facts and that type of stuff, but I'm not a fan of it at all. End quote. When asked about why he was hesitant to get vaccinated for COVID-19, Sweat said, quote, I haven't caught COVID yet, so I don't see me treating COVID until I actually get COVID 
end quote. And my whole point was not to shame Sweat or call him stupid or anything like that. Even though his comments suggested that he didn't seem to get that getting vaccinated is meant to prevent you from getting COVID-19 or at the very least minimize the symptoms of COVID-19 if you get COVID-19. The vaccine, of course, is a proactive measure, not a reactive measure. But a big part of my point was the competitive advantage in getting vaccinated. That competitive advantage now has been further heightened. A second thing that stood out to me from the reported COVID-19 protocols for NFL training camps and the preseason this year, NFL players who aren't fully vaccinated will be banned from nightclubs, bars, house parties, concerts, etc., with the NFL and clubs allowed to issue fines of a game check up to $50,000 for a first offense and more thereafter for violating protocol. So no hitting up the club, no hitting up house parties, no hitting up stripper parties with Dwayne Haskins if you haven't been fully vaccinated. And if you haven't been fully vaccinated and you get caught doing one of these things, and these days with cell phones, it's hard not to get caught, $50,000 fine minimum. Again, the NFL is making life as much of a pain as possible for players who don't get vaccinated. And then a third thing that stood out to me from the reported updated COVID-19 protocols for NFL training camps in the preseason this year, fully vaccinated individuals have no restrictions on marketing and sponsorship opportunities. NFL players who aren't fully vaccinated are not allowed to have marketing and sponsorship opportunities. Now, this one's a little confusing to me. Like, what's the big deal if a player who hasn't been fully vaccinated sponsors something in a way that doesn't require shooting a commercial or interacting with people or anything like that. But I suppose that this protocol is not so much about spreading COVID-19 as the protocol is about not wanting non-vaccinated players serving as representatives of the league via sponsorships. Again, the NFL is making life as much of a pain as possible for players who don't get vaccinated. As I have said, I am fully vaccinated for COVID-19. I got the Moderna vaccine. Or is it Moderna? I've heard it both ways. But anyway, I went to Walgreens. I got shot up. I was in rough shape for about 12 hours after the initial 12 hours after my second shot. And then I was fine. And I've been fine ever since. The data is crystal clear. Vaccines are safe and vaccines work. However, I am not a fan of making people get vaccinated. I am not a fan of lecturing people on vaccinations. You shouldn't make people get vaccinated. You shouldn't shame people into getting vaccinated. You also shouldn't have to bribe people to get vaccinated, as so many entities and governments are doing now. But I am sympathetic to the NFL and thus have no problem with what the league is doing here. The NFL is a business. The NFL can run its business however the NFL wants to run its business, so long as the NFL runs the business in a legal way. You're allowed to do the things that the NFL is doing. Do I think that the NFL wants players to get vaccinated for COVID-19 for their health? Mm, Not really. I think that the NFL wants players to get vaccinated for COVID-19 to ensure that the league has a smooth and uninterrupted 2021 season in which stadiums are packed, television ratings are through the roof, and revenues skyrocket. That's what this is about. This is about money. As Michael Corleone said to his brother, Sonny, in The Godfather, it's not personal. It's strictly business. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. Yeah, it's strictly business. And if you as a player are that bent out of shape 
about having to get vaccinated for COVID-19 or about having to adhere to these strict protocols, then don't be a part of the league. Don't play. It's as simple as that. Nobody's holding a gun to your head to be in the NFL. And when it comes to the team that I care about the most, and I know that most of you listening care about the most, the Washington football team, the football team based in Washington, uh, I do wonder to what extent these updated protocols will compel players to get vaccinated. Don't forget, Ron Rivera at his post-minicamp practice press conference on June 9th said that all of Washington's coaches and employees have been vaccinated for COVID-19, but also that Washington was nearing just a 50% COVID-19 vaccination rate for players. Washington found it necessary to bring in a COVID-19 vaccine expert to speak to the team. Dr. Kizmikia S. Corbett, an immunologist and leading coronavirus vaccine researcher, she spoke to the team on June 8th. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a confusing, divisive, and politicized mess. But the NFL's updated COVID-19 protocols really are simple. They are, like most things in life, about money. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. That's right. Nothing personal, strictly business. All right, so the sweep is complete for the Nationals. They did what needed to be done over the course of three games against the lowly Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park. 3-2 win on Monday night, 8-1 win on Tuesday night, 3-1 win on Wednesday. And so, Davey Martinez, if you would please. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, sir, Davey. The Nats are rising. Four consecutive wins, six wins in eight games. Nats now are 30 and 35 on the season. Now are a game above 500 on the season in terms of home games. Nats are 18 and 17 now at Nationals Park, including five and two now on this 11 game homestand. Now, look, the Pirates are horrendous. They now have lost 10 consecutive games. They have the second worst record in the National League at 23 and 44, and the worst run differential in the NL at minus 100. Yes, the Pirates have been outscored this season by 100 runs. A C note. And contributing to that, the Nationals pitching staff, which was outstanding for a second consecutive series. The Nats pitching staff on this homestand so far, has been in another universe. The Nats pitching staff over the course of this three-game sweep of the Pirates allowed four runs in 27 innings. That's it. Four runs in 27 innings. Nats starters in the series combined to allow just three runs in 18 and two-thirds innings. And note, the three starters were not 2019 Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and Patrick Corbin. The three starters were not Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz. The three starters were John Lester, Patrick Corbin, and Paolo Espino. Lester is a shell of what he used to be. Corbin is in the midst of a second consecutive bad season. And Paolo Espino is, well, Paolo Espino. More on him in a bit. And yet those three guys in this series combined to allow just three runs in 18 and two-thirds innings. And that's relievers in the series combined to allow one run in eight and a third innings. And this is off what happened over the course of the Nats' previous series, that four-game split with the San Francisco Giants at Nationals Park last weekend. Nats pitchers in that series, two runs, one earned in 33 innings, including Nats starters in the series combining for 17 and a third scoreless innings. And remember the specifics of that. 
You, yes, had Max Scherzer, but he threw just a third of an inning. Eric Fetty, Jeffrey Rodriguez, and Joe Ross were the Nats' other three starters in that series, and yet the Nats' pitching was dominant. It's not just what the Nats' pitching has been doing lately. It's who has been behind the what. It really is remarkable. Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and Daniel Hudson are all on the 10-day injured list. Your top two starters and your best reliever this season, all on the 10-day IL, and yet your pitching has been magnificent. Now, I think you do have to say the opposition has had something to do with this. The Giants' offense isn't great. The Pirates are atrocious. But still, this dominance by the Nats pitching should not go unnoticed. It's been great to see, and it certainly has led the way here with the Nats, again, so far being 5-2 and two on this big 11-game homestand. Now, Paolo Espino and what he did in this 3-1 win over the Pirates at Nationals Park on Wednesday. What a job. Excellent in his spot start. Five scoreless innings on two strikeouts versus three hits, which were two doubles into single, and no walks on 53 pitches, 39 of which were strikes. Paolo Espino is a guy who was in his mid-30s. He was a 10th round pick by the Cleveland Indians in the 2006 MLB draft. He's someone who has been leaned on by the Nationals at the major league level this season, in large part because the Nationals don't have many options. The Nationals are not a deep organization when it comes to pitching depth. It's a big problem for the Nationals right now. So Paolo Espino has gotten a ton of run, but Paolo Espino has been great. And with his five scoreless innings on Wednesday, he registered the first win of his major league career. And you know me, I am not one to tout pitcher wins, but in this case, I'll make an exception. A guy who, again, was a 10th round pick of the Cleveland Indians in the 2006 MLB draft, doesn't get his first major league win until June 2021. It happened on Wednesday. So hats off to our guy, Paolo Espino, who now on the season, over 15 games, including two starts, has posted the following numbers. 27 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 228, and a whip of 0.80. He doesn't throw particularly hard, but what he does do is locate his pitches and be pitch efficient. And he gets the job done, and he's got the job done for the Nationals so far this year. Cannot say enough about Paolo Espino. I really enjoyed what he did in the top of the fourth on Wednesday, walking the tightrope to throw a scoreless top of the fourth, during which he gave up no runs, despite giving up a one-out double to Brian Reynolds, followed by a one-out single to Gregory Polanco, who then stole second base. So the Pirates had runners on second and third with one out, and yet didn't score. Espino got each of the Pirates' next two batters out, including striking out Phillip Evans on four pitches. I tweeted back at my co-host on the Nats Chat podcast, Mark Zuckerman, because Zook talked about Espino having escaped a jam there. I said, Espino doesn't get out of jams. Jams get out of Espino's way. He's become like the Chuck Norris of the Nationals pitching staff. And five scoreless innings for him in a spot start on Wednesday against the Pirates. We salute Paolo Espino on the Al Galdi podcast. Nats bullpen was good in this game on Wednesday. Four Nats relievers combining to allow one run in four innings. Tanner Rainey tossing a scoreless top of the sixth inning. So his recent resurgence continues. Five scoreless and hitless innings now for Rainey over his last five appearances off his ERA ballooning to 10.57 in allowing three runs in that 12-6 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies on June 6 in what was a bullpen game for the Nats. Sam Clay, another guy who's been a lot better lately, retired two of the three batters he faced 
to begin the top of the seventh. Kyle Finnegan did give up a run in two-thirds of an inning. He gave up a first pitch single, but then got the final out in a scoreless top of the seventh. Actually did a really nice job in that inning. Struck out pinch hitter Colin Moran on four pitches with runners on first and second and two outs. Finnegan did, though, allow a run in the top of the eighth on a one-out double, followed by a one-out first pitch RBI single by Brian Reynolds that cut the Nats' lead to 3-1. But then came Brad Hand, who ended up registering a five-out save. Hand retired the two batters he faced in the top of the eighth, then tossed a scoreless top of the ninth, despite giving up back-to-back two-out singles. So it did get slightly dicey in that top of the ninth inning, but Hand ended up sealing the deal. Brad Hand, another guy who had been struggling for a bit, he's back to being on. Hand now has allowed just two earned runs in 12 innings over his last 11 appearances. Now, the Nats pitching was awesome. The Nats offense was not. Uh, the Nats offense, truth be told, was only really good in one of the three games in this three-game sweep of the Pittsburgh Pirates. But the Nats ended up sweeping the Pirates because, again, the Pirates are atrocious. But in this 3-1 win on Wednesday, the Nats had just three runs, eight hits, two homers, and six singles, four walks, one for five with runners in scoring position, multiple bases-loaded opportunities from which the Nats had no runs. Nats had the bases loaded with one out in the bottom of the fourth, scored no runs. Nats had the bases loaded with one out in the bottom of the sixth, scored no runs. The Nats have been so bad this season with the bases loaded. That trend continued on Wednesday. Nats did, though, get a big game from the former Pirate, Josh Bell. He was the starting first baseman and number four batter, two for three with a two-run homer, a single, and a walk. Bell smashing a two-out, two-run homer to right center field in the bottom of the seventh for a 3 nothing Nats lead. The home run going a projected 390 feet per stat cast. Love seeing that. Bell also had a one-out five-pitch walk in the bottom of the fourth and a leadoff single in the bottom of the sixth, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. Yadin Gomes hit another homer on Wednesday. He was the Nats starting catcher in all three games in the series. was back out there as a number five batter. Two for four with a solo homer, a single, did strike out twice, but he had a one-out solo homer in the bottom of the second, a one-out single in the bottom of the fourth. Remember, Gomes smashed a one-out grand slam on a bomb to left field on a 1-2 pitch, and the Nats five-run first in the 8-1 win over the Pirates at Nationals Park on Tuesday night. And yes, what was a rare instance of the Nats actually doing something with the bases loaded. But this was not a good offensive game for the Nats on Wednesday. Victor Robles was horrible. Uh, Robles Starting center fielder, number eight batter in all three games in the series. Robles on Wednesday, 0 for 4. He left seven men on base. He popped out with two outs and the bases loaded in the bottom of the fourth. He flew out with the bases loaded and went out in the bottom of the sixth. Trey Turner did not have a good game on Wednesday. Starting shortstop, number two batter, he went 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts. It's off a big game for him in that 8-1 win on Tuesday night, 4-5 with an RBI triple and three singles. Juan Soto in the game on Wednesday. Another meager performance by him. Nats right fielder, number three batter in all three games in the series. One for four with a single and a strikeout. He had a two-out first pitch single in the Nats two-run seventh, but he also had another double play. Soto was grounded into so many double plays so far this year. He grounded into a full count one six three double play for the second and third outs in the bottom of the first. You know, here we are again with Juan Soto talking about him not hitting for any power here recently. He has not been good on this homestand. Juan Soto, over the course of these three games against the Pirates, three for 12 with three singles and no walks. This off what he did in that four-game split with the Giants, one for 11 with a single and two walks. So Soto, so far on the homestand, four for 23 with four singles and two walks. That's it. I mean, that is not the Juan Soto 
that we've come to know. Uh, it is worth noting Kyle Schwarber was the number one batter for the Nationals in all three games in this series against the Pirates. So dare I say, Kyle Schwarber has become the every game leadoff man. We'll see. Uh, you know, he wasn't great or anything like that on Wednesday. Did have a hit, though. Had a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the first inning. Also with the Nationals, Starling Castro now is out. Uh, the Nats on Wednesday put Castro on the restricted list and recalled Luis Garcia from AAA Rochester. Davey Martinez in a pregame press conference on Wednesday saying that Castro has some, quote, family matters, end quote, to which he needs to attend. So we don't know much. Uh, certainly wish Starling Castro and his family the best. I mean, he has not had a very good season. I do now wonder if maybe that has had something to do with Castro having not had a very good season so far. Jordy Mercer, another ex-pirate on the Nats, ended up being the Nats' starting third baseman in each of the final two games in this series. Mercer in the win on Wednesday, 0 for 2 with two walks. Did strike out on six pitches with the bases loaded and went out in the bottom of the fourth in another instance of the Nats struggling with the bases loaded. Garcia did start on Wednesday. He was the Nats' starting second baseman. He went uh, 1 for 3 with a single and a walk. He had a one-out first pitch single in the bottom of the fourth and a one-out five-pitch walk in the bottom of the sixth inning. So next up for the Nats, a big series. Four-game set against the National League East-leading New York Mets. Game one, Friday night at 7.05. Eric Fetty will start. Game two, Saturday afternoon at 1.05 and game one of a doubleheader. Game three, Saturday evening at 6.05 and game two of a doubleheader. We know who the Nats' two starting pitchers on Saturday will be. We don't know, though, in what order those pitchers will pitch. So John Lester and Joe Ross, in some order, will be the Nats' starting pitchers on Saturday. And then game four, Sunday afternoon at 1.05, Patrick Corbin will start. The good news for the Nats in this series, no Jacob deGrom, the best pitcher on the planet right now. He actually started for the Mets in their 6-3 win over the Chicago Cubs on Wednesday night. Had to leave that outing due to right shoulder soreness. This off deGrom having exited his previous start after only 80 pitches due to right flexor tendonitis. So uh, we don't know what's going on with deGrom here lately, but uh, he's had some ailments that have been popping up. He, of course, has been phenomenal. deGrom's ERA for the season is down to 0. 0.54 of him throwing three perfect innings with eight strikeouts on Wednesday night. But the Nationals will not be facing Jacob deGrom over the course of this four-game series, which gets going after an off day on Thursday. Well, you can always tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet from Sam Pham on Wednesday. Hey, Galdi, the Orioles are tanking, and that's why they need to continue starting Matt Harvey. Touche, Sam. That actually makes a lot of sense. Well, Matt Harvey did not start for the Orioles on Wednesday night, but the Orioles still lost. Uh, lost another road game. O's now have lost a franchise record 18 consecutive road games. Remain winless on the road since the John Means no-hitter at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th. In case you're curious, the major league record for most consecutive road losses for a team is 22. That is a record that is shared by the 1963 New York Mets and the 1943 Philadelphia Athletics. We're getting closer to this. Orioles now, again, have lost a franchise record 18 consecutive road games. 8-7 the final at the Cleveland Indians on Wednesday night. O's falling to an American League worst 22-45 and with an AL worst run differential of minus 75. It was another game in which the Orioles starting pitching was brutal. Keegan Aiken was the culprit this time. Aiken on Wednesday night, eight runs in five and two-thirds innings. He allowed eight hits, a homer, two doubles, and five singles. 
He issued three walks. Now, what was funny is he did have seven strikeouts over the five and two-thirds innings, and he actually threw a bunch of strikes. He threw 71 of his 96 pitches for strikes, but a five-run Indians third is what stood out as much as anything. And Aiken, in that five-run Indians third, allowed each of the Indians' first six batters to reach base. I mean, this was like a nightmare. Single, walk, single, single, double, double, Aiken ended up getting brutalized in the game. Second consecutive disappointing outing for Aiken, who in the Orioles' 4-2 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays this past Friday night, allowed three runs in four innings. He had been good in each of his first two major league starts this season. He has not been good, though, over his last two starts. Aiken's another one of these young pitchers you want to see do well. It has been uh, dicey for Keegan Aiken so far at the major league level this season. Remember, Aiken is the guy who the Orioles optioned to AAA Norfolk back on March 26. He had been viewed as likely to begin the season in the Orioles' major league rotation, but he was really bad during the Grapefruit League season. So he got demoted late in March. He then got recalled by the O's on May 10th. He's made some starts here lately, and the results have been mixed, as we like to say. And it was a shame that Aiken pitched as he pitched on Wednesday night because the Orioles' offense, which has been really bad lately, was actually good on Wednesday night. Seven runs, 12 hits, three walks, six for 12 with runners in scoring position. Big game for Ryan Mountcastle. This was good to see. He was the Orioles' starting DH at number four batter. He had three hits and four RBI. RBI single in the Orioles' two-run first, a one-out RBI single in the top of the third, and a two-out first pitch, two-run homer to left field in the top of the fifth. Trey Mancini had a big game on Wednesday night. Orioles' starting first baseman, number two batter, had three hits, a single in the Orioles' two-run first, a leadoff double in the Orioles' one-run third, despite having been down in the count at 1.12 and a one-out single in the Orioles' two-run fifth inning. But uh, the offensive performance went to waste. Like I said, it's not like the Orioles' offense has been very good lately. It has not been good lately. Uh, Mancini has calmed down. Mountcastle, who was flying for a while, had calmed down. Good to see those two guys at least do some things on Wednesday night. But, you know, somebody like Anthony Santander, if you remember when he came off the 10-day injured list, he was killing it. We haven't even talked about him in weeks at this point. Uh, He's really cooled off as well. The Orioles are a bad team. We are certainly seeing that up close and personal with this 18-game road losing streak. We'll see if that gets to 19. O's trying to avoid a four-game sweep, or are they? They are tanking at the end of the day, but anyway, Orioles back at the Indians, let's say it that way, on Thursday afternoon, beginning at 1:10. Jorge Lopez gets the start. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com and spread the word because I have for you not one, but two special guests on Friday's installment of the podcast. Former Old Dominion football head coach Bobby Wilder and Washington Post columnist Barry's Verluga. Wilder, he was Taylor Heineke's head coach at ODU, remains tight with Taylor, recently spoke with Taylor, and reached out to me about some things that Taylor had to say. You don't want to miss this. The intrigue that is the Washington football team quarterback competition going to be getting more intriguing with the Friday installment of the podcast. And then with Barry's Verluga, he wrote a column on the Wizards parting ways with Scott Brooks. So we'll talk about that and talk Nationals as well, because Barry is always great talking Nats. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? 
Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.